you all open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1 this morning. John chapter 1. We may have to open some doors here in a moment. As uh, we got a new thermostat, if you haven't noticed, on the wall. It's a wonderful new thermostat. It'd be even more wonderful if it worked. So, that happened Friday, and we, we're not over on this part of the building much during the week, so... Uh, we're just discovering it's not working real well, so we may open the door here in a moment to help some of you remain comfortable with a little fresh air, cool air, uh, but uh, we'll do what we can this morning, okay? Let's begin reading in John chapter 1, let's read beginning in verse 19, and we'll read down through verse 34, and then go back and just look at verses 19 through 22. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent him sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. When they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven. And he remained upon him, and I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Father, again, open your word now. These are your words, these are your thoughts, accompanying them with your Holy Spirit and cause the Spirit to take them from the ear to the mind and to the heart of your people, that you might be glorified in the change you make in us to be more like the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us. The things we do not know, Father, we pray that you would teach us. The things that we do not have, we pray that you would equip us and give us. And the thing which we are not, but that you would desire us to be, we pray that you would make us by the power of your word and for your glory this morning. Amen. Charles Dickens writes in his classic work, A Tale of Two Cities, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. So it was in the opening days of 
the Gospels. and In the ministry of John the Baptist, it could well be said that Dickens wrote of that time and of him. The pressures had often, by the time John the Baptist rolls onto the scene, that the pressures had often reached a boiling point to the point of overflowing in the centuries just preceding the arrival of John the Baptist. The Jewish people had long been awaiting their Messiah. They, they were eager for Him to come. They were eager for their oppression under their Roman overlords to be ended and to be free once again. No doubt for some of those people, their hope faded like a mirage in the vast Judean wilderness. Others held on to hope that there would arise a man who would lead a rebellion and overthrow those tyrannical lords from Rome. Still others, whose minds and hearts were filled with faith, men like Simeon who waited for Jesus at the temple when Jesus came for His cleansing. Men like Simeon waited with faith and with intense longing for for true deliverance, a restoration of, of the heart of the people of God and for the people of God as a whole. So out of this roiling cauldron of expectation, of hope, of hatred, of confusion, of strife, of frustration... We're introduced to a voice that comes crying in the wilderness this morning. It is the voice of John the Baptist, the last of the great Old Testament prophets. And he's thundering for all of us this morning a message that we cannot afford to miss. And even here in the opening testimony that John the Baptist gives and that the Apostle John records in this Gospel, we find the truths that are able to accomplish God's eternal purposes in salvation and set men free. The freedom that the Jewish people had so longed for and so hoped for and placed all their uh, faith in being a physical deliverance, John the Baptist comes and offers true freedom and spiritual deliverance this morning. So brothers and sisters, as we approach the text, I want you to understand this. That we are reading the testimony of this man, this, this quite incredible man, John the Baptist. And in his testimony, we see the importances of God's promises. Again, I think if we could summarize all the Scripture in two phrases, it would simply be this. That the Scriptures are promises made and promises kept. And we can look at the Bible any number of ways, and no doubt we do. We, we look at the Bible, each of us, through the lens of what we've been taught, through the lens of our own reading and experience. We may see the Bible quite differently, but the reality is this. The Bible and its central theme and its central thrust is simply this, that God is a God of promise. And that God is a faithful God who keeps those promises. And John, by his very testimony as he comes on the scene in this gospel, gives us the importances of these promises. And so I want you to notice three importances this morning that come in the beginning of John's testimony. And we can't get to all of it this morning, but we'll get to at least these four verses. Number one, there's the importance of clarification. Secondly, there's the importance of anticipation. And lastly, there is the importance of redemption. And we want to take these one by one as we take the text apart this morning and look and see 
what promises of God lie before us. As the Apostle John recalls hearing and pins down the testimony and the witness of John the Baptist, he begins with some important clarifications. And I'll just say this about clarifications. It's at times of intense pressure and times of heightened emotion and heightened senses that we need clarification more than ever. Have you noticed that? When when things are uh, elevated and when things are pumped up and when there is a, a sense of Uh, of heightened awareness. It is more important than ever that we clarify so that there is no misunderstanding about what is being communicated. At no time is it easier to misunderstand someone than when we are excited. Would you agree with that? Think about some of the moments of intense fellowship in your life. Intense conversation. That you've had with somebody. It could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. But when we are heightened. When when our emotions are running high. When our expectations are running high. Something happens in the heat of expectation. Or emotional volatility. that, That maybe you were misunderstood. Or you misunderstood someone. I think you all know what this is like. And for those of us who are parents. You know we we have our children. And. They, they have their mind set on something. Maybe it's an ice cream cone. Maybe it's a piece of candy. Maybe it's something wonderful and they're so excited. And they come running to you with a great sense of anticipation. And they say, hey mom, hey dad, can I have, can I do? And they're, they're just so excited. And your response is, well, thank you. Right? They under, mis- completely misunderstand what you're trying to communicate, and they run and they grab the ice cream and you come in later and there they are eating. You say, I didn't tell you you could have that. But I thought you, no, you misunderstood. You hoped that is what I was going to say, but it wasn't at all what I was going to say. Misunderstanding of such a nature has the potential to change everything, doesn't it? It has the, the potential to ruin things. And so clarification and Very clear communication is needed at times when there are heightened expectation and heightened emotions. John the Baptist comes to do that. He comes to offer clarification in our text this morning. From a human perspective, John the Baptist came at one of the most tense times in human history. I know things feel tense today. You turn on the news You know, it's enough to give you a heart attack. Because you would think that the whole world's going to end within the next five minutes. Because they are trying to hype your emotions and hype your senses about certain things. And we might think we're living at a tense time. Let me tell you, it's probably nothing compared to the world in which John the Baptist lived and the the, the tense pressures he came into. There has been a great crescendo of expectation for the Messiah. And there's been conflict leading up to the Messiah's birth. John, as I mentioned earlier, is the last of the Old Testament prophets. But he's in the New Testament, yes. But he is preceding the ministry of Christ, which by very virtue of time places him along with the Old Testament rather than the New. And who he aligns with and identifies with. And so here is John, and he comes, and it's been four 
400 years since God spoke through the last prophet. 400 years since Malachi had received a word from God and the people of Israel had been waiting knowing that that chapter in their history had closed out and that the next advent would be the Messiah. You can imagine after 400 years this deep longing and expectation that is present within them. There had been in that 400 years periods of great political and military consternation. You had the Maccabean revolt and you had other lesser revolts against Roman oppression and there had been bloodshed and their own countrymen have died. False messiahs proliferated, by the way, during this period. Historians tell us that it's almost unheard of to find a Passover at that point in history in that 400 year span between the Old and New Testament where there was not a Passover that happened that a man did not stand up in Jerusalem and say, I'm the Messiah, follow me. Only to be met with Roman tyranny and stamping out that attempt at rebellion before it could grow. And so John comes into this scenario, and it's important, the context matters. And so when a man with the oddities of John, and let's just admit, he's not your average guy. Right? He, he, he's wearing camel hair and leather and he's eating wild locusts and honey and he's out in the wilderness and he's a loner and he's just, he's just strange. You're probably not going to run up to him and invite him over for dinner. He just looks and sounds otherworldly. And so when a man with the oddities and yet the charisma of John the Baptist burst onto the scene, and more than that, when you see people beginning to follow him in mass, the leaders start to scratch their head and say, what is this? We've not seen this before. We've not experienced this type of a man before. And we've not experienced, yes, we've been in a state of heightened alertness. A heightened readiness for Messiah. So maybe this is him. And so in verse 19, we find that the Jews from Jerusalem send a delegation for clarification. They want to know exactly why this is. And we ask ourselves, why did they do this? Well, for the same reason, they tried to silence Jesus' disciples and those who worshipped Jesus at the triumphal entry in Matthew 21 and Luke 19. Because the Romans, you see, would tolerate the Jewish religion and they would tolerate Jewish customs up to a point. But at the point that the crowds began to grow and they began to cry out that that another was Lord other than Caesar, there reached a point at which the Roman garrison would open its gates and the Roman soldiers would pour into the streets and slaughter anyone who was following the new king. Because only Caesar was king. And so they were willing to tolerate it to a point. And and it appears that the Jewish leaders are concerned that, hey, if this keeps going on, If John the Baptist keeps garnering a following, pretty soon the Romans are going to get involved and we're all going to die. So it was in their sense of self-preservation that they send out a delegation to find out what are you doing? 
And who are you? Because this is going to affect not just you and not just your crowd that's following you. This has the potential to blow society wide open. And so they want clarification. Strange man dressed in prophetic garb resembling Elijah. That can't be good for the Jewish leaders. Certainly not good for the Romans. Elijah being the most revered prophet and one who could easily bring about eschatological frenzy that the end of time had come. People thinking that the end was right here and right now. Who could blame them? This guy looks like Elijah. He sounds like Elijah. And the last they heard, shortly before the 400 years of silence started, was this from Malachi 4, verse 6, 5. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. No wonder they're excited. No wonder they're, they're, they're worked up into a frenzy. This man sounds like Elijah. He looks like Elijah. And God said, just before the great and terrible day of the Lord, Elijah was coming back, or at least one like him. This must be him. To the pious Jews who genuinely waited for the Messiah, this might well be their prophetic moment. But to the pandering Jews of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, this might well be their political demise. For better or for worse, John the Baptist was a polarizing figure and they needed clarification. And so they send out a group consisting of two different types of religious leaders and servants from Jerusalem to interrogate him. Notice the two groups. It says that uh, they sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him the questions to interrogate him. Number one, it says they sent priests. Who are priests? Priests are those who were the direct descendants of Aaron, the high priest. They were Levites, to be sure. They were of the tribe of Levi. But more importantly, within the tribe of Levi, they were Aaron's direct descendants. Secondly, it says they sent out Levites. Well, aren't they all the same? Aren't you a priest if you're a Levite? No. You have to be in the line of Aaron to be a priest, but you can still be a Levite without being a priest. And so they send the Levites with them. Who were the Levites? They were servants in the temple. They were the temple guard. They functioned in a police or military fashion to protect the temple. They were the musicians of the temple. So more than likely, it is probably that they sent a military-type entourage along with the priest to question this man. Because after all, in a sense of heightened expectation and emotional frenzy, especially when people are saying this could be Elijah, which would mean the end is near, I think you want some armed guards around you when you start asking this guy questions because he may lose it. Right? It's happened before. There had been bloody revolts, the Maccabees and others. And so they send this delegation to John the Baptist. Now here's the point of interest. John the Baptist himself was a Levite. John the Baptist himself was of the direct line of Aaron. His father, Zechariah, was a priest in the temple. So when these people come to John the Baptist from Jerusalem, there's a better than not chance that John knew them. 
that the Baptist had familiarized himself with them. That, that, that they at least knew his father. Perhaps they don't recognize the Baptist when they first come out. But the reality is this. John is familiar with them. He is familiar with their workings. And they, more than likely, know at least some of who he is. He is Zechariah's son. He is one who could be in their number. He's qualified, eminently so, by virtue of his birth. These are his people. But like Jesus, his cousin, through his mother's side who would come after him, it would be his own people. Are you listening? It is his own people who most vehemently end up rejecting him. It is the priests, it is the Levites, it is the Pharisees who hate John the most. Because he is a threat to them. He is a threat to their 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 kingdom that they have created. He is a threat to their physical safety because he may get the Romans involved by his bold message. And so they come with a great desire, with much on the line, to resolve this tension through clarification. John, for his part, appears to be unfazed by their line of questioning. He's just going to tell it like it is. He's just there to tell the truth and to speak the truth, regardless of what it is and what the outcome is. That's obvious. In just a few sermons, he will promptly, because of the truth, have his head severed. And so John is unfazed by their attempt for clarification. He's not bothered by it. Which leads us then to the second importance. That's the importance of anticipation this morning. Notice how Scripture records what is said. They ask Him, Who are you? No niceties. No, hey, John, good to see you. I haven't seen you in years. Aren't you Zechariah's son? No, No questions about His qualifications, where He's born. None of those things. It's just straight to the heart of the matter. Who are you? Very blunt, very cool, very impersonal. They want to see what he will say. Is he another madman who's just come onto the scene to, like so many who have a messianic complex, who wants to be a great leader and deliverer of God's people? Is he mentally deranged as Jesus himself would be accused of being, by the way, by his own siblings? Who is he? What is he? We need to get to the bottom of this. John must have known what they were after. He he knew why they were coming, which tells me John was familiar with the history of his own people. He had seen these wacko, messianic types crop up in the past, and he had seen how they were dealt with, and he knew that is what they were concerned with, because what does he say? I'm not the Christ. First word out of his mouth. They don't ask specifically, do you think you're the Messiah? He just knows that's what they want to know. So he jumps, he preempts them and jumps straight to the heart of the matter. If they're abrupt, so is he. He knows what they're after. He he understands the anticipation. He cuts right to the heart of the matter to alleviate their fears. And in this respect, John is a true minister. John is a true preacher. His goal is to get the message right and to get the message 
write as quickly and clearly as possible. That's a mark of a, a good minister of Jesus Christ. He is truthful, he is clear, and he's direct. And so John the Baptist wastes no time. He, he gets straight to the heart of the matter in order to alleviate their fears and their perhaps preconceived ideas about who he was. He's not here to exalt himself. He's not claiming, yeah, you know, I might be the Messiah. What do you think? He doesn't play games. He doesn't manipulate. He doesn't leave room for himself to share part of the glory. He just flatly says, I am not Messiah. Now, how different. How different because men who'd come before him who would have loved the opportunity to stand up and say, yep, that's me. John, John doesn't do that. He's not in it for himself. He doesn't paint himself as a mystery that they need to unravel and muse over and unpack. That would detract from why he was there. And so he is straightforward and honest. He's plain spoken. From the beginning to the end of his ministry, John cut it straight. He was a voice that God could honor. Once you notice also the structure of the response of John, and I think it's helpful to us this morning. He denies what they were really suspecting him to say. He just flat out takes the, the, the steam out of their oven. He says, nope, that's not me. Well, well man, we were really expecting. Have you, have you been in those conversations where you're expecting somebody to say it and you've rehearsed it in your mind a million times? They're going to say this, and when they say this, I'm going to say this, and they say something completely opposite and it diffuses the situation. Where are you left? Uh, uh, that's them. That's John. Why does he do it? So that his mission and what he really has to say and re- re- who he really is becomes the focal point, not their pre- preconceived ideas. And notice his words. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Now that is wordy. In fact, if you were to write that in your English paper, kids, your teacher's probably going to make your paper bleed. Red ink everywhere. It's just too, too cumbersome to read and to say. But, but it's not without importance. He confessed, and he did not deny, but he did confess. You see, in times past, even in some, <clears throat> excuse me, recent documents, it's helpful to give, again, clarifying statements of belief based both on what we deny and what we confess. We don't believe this, but we do believe this. It's very helpful. I'm not saying this, but I am saying this. How that would help a parent with the conversation with the ice cream cone, right? I am saying you can have ice cream, but I'm not saying you can have ice cream before dinner, right? But I am saying you can have it after dinner. And so there's great clarification in the moment of anticipation, and John is doing that helpfully so to these people. He is saying, even in his denial, that I have something positive to say. And isn't that a, just to go back and, you know, maybe encourage you parents. Isn't that a, a grace-filled way to respond to our children? Instead of just flatly, no, you can't have ice cream. 
It's, you know, I, my heart is to give you ice cream. I know that's not best for you at the moment, but you can have some after you eat what's nutritious for you. You want to do what's desirable to your children. You want to be kind to them. You want to show grace to them. It's as if John is doing the same thing. He doesn't just cut them off and it's not just bland. He's trying to be helpful. I'm going to tell you both positive and negative some things about me. And let's look how John clarifies their anticipation. First of all, as I mentioned, he denies that he's the Christ, the Messiah that they had all been waiting for. Doesn't even pretend to be. What's ironic is this. It would seem that everyone except the people asking the questions would have been excited to hear him say yes. Here's the religious leaders of the day. They are terrified he's going to say yes. More than that, they end up, and we know this because of the way they treated Jesus, they were terrified when Jesus actually proved he was the Messiah. Why? Because it meant a surrendering of their own kingdom, of their own little fiefdom that they had created, of their own little religious system. But it's the the, the common man, if you will, that was so excited and they had so hoped that John would be the Messiah. And yet here are the, these religious leaders, they didn't want the Messiah. That meant the end of their little rule. That meant the end of their importance. That meant the end of their necessity. But to calm their anxieties, he quickly denies that he is the Messiah. He doesn't deny that it's important for the Messiah to come, even for the Messiah to come immediately. He doesn't deny that he's, he's anything uh, different, but he also doesn't deny that the Messiah may be near. It just isn't Him. He doesn't want to detract from the Messiah when He does come. He wants everyone to focus on the Messiah. I'm going to deny what I am so that when He comes, you will be full of real anticipation and full excitement for Him. Should, should that not be our life, Christian? Do everything, live every way, so that when every question is asked or, or every statement is made, that we do so in a way that is self-effacing in a, in a genuinely humble way, that, that points others to Christ, so that people aren't confused. Not that we think we're Messiah. But we do all love ourselves too much. And, and to make Christ known and to, to deny ourselves so that Christ can be made known, it's no surprise then that John the Baptist would say in John chapter 3, verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. He's exemplifying that by his actions right here. No, I'm not him. I deny that. But I do confess he's coming. And I do confess that he's needed. Secondly, he denies that he is the one greatly revered. Uh, it would be the prophet Elijah. What, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. No, clearly not. How about the great prophet? No, not him either. You see, John was so humble, he himself didn't take upon himself the mantle of Elijah. Even though Jesus and the other gospel writers viewed him as Elijah. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 11, 14, and if you are willing to accept him, or accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Jesus says, yeah, it actually is the one we talked about. And John's like, I, I can't be, that can't be me. 
I'm just John the Baptist. I'm just Zechariah's son. I'm nothing special. No, I'm not him. Well, how about the prophet? What prophet are we referring to here? Well, figure like Moses, according to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me from among you, Moses says, from your countrymen, and you will listen to him. This is according to all that you ask of the Lord your God on Mount Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. So great was the Lord, they were terrified. They wanted a prophet to buffer between them and the Lord. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Apparently, John was a pretty good preacher. And apparently, John was really skilled at preaching the Old Testament. Because now they say, you're the guy that Moses talked about. The one who has the word of God in his mouth. Aren't you? We've heard you preach. We know what you sound like. And it sounds like Deuteronomy 18. And John says, no, I'm not him either. We are really baffled. I mean, here you've had three stunning opportunities to exalt yourself, John. We ask if you're Messiah, you say no. We ask if you're Elijah, you say no. We ask if you're Moses, no. You're really something. Who are you then? And so with the weight of the centuries and the weight of the promises of the Messiah to come, with the power of Scripture hanging over them for so long, they are filled with anticipation. So what do they do? Well, then you can almost see them throw up their hands. We're out of questions, Your Honor. Got nothing else to ask. Then you tell us, who are you, John? We don't have any more direct questions. We'll ask an open-ended question. Who are you then? Who are you? Which leads us to our third importance this morning, and that is the importance of redemption. John's clarified. John has built the anticipation. He's provoked the question that now allows him To preach the gospel. Well, think with me for a moment. What if John had said, you know, I am the Messiah? What if John had said, you know, I am Elijah and I am Moses. And I have a message for you. And then John began to go on a rant about the hypocrisy of the religious system, which he would have been right to do. Or gone on a rant against Roman tyranny, which he would have been right to do. He would have been correct in all that he said, but he would have been incorrect in this, that he would have lost the platform to do what was of greatest importance, and that was to shine the light on Messiah, on Jesus Christ, so that the gospel would be heard and that men and women would be saved. That's what he came to do. And because he would deny so that he could then reflect, he's able to dig down in and to focus on the importance of redemption. John set them up to ask the question, okay, John, then you tell us. I'm glad you asked. Here's who I am. Are you ready? 
one can almost hear the nervousness in their question, right? What is he going to say? He's like the crazy uncle at the family reunion. Nobody knows what's coming next. What's he going to say? Maybe we shouldn't have asked the open-ended question. We like the pointed questions that could be yes, no, better. The anticipation is so thick you can cut it with a knife. And it is at this moment that John the Baptist breaks through with the greatest message that has ever been uttered. It is a message of salvation. Go back to Isaiah chapter 40 with me. John says that Isaiah the prophet spoke this, so let's read what Isaiah the prophet spoke. Now as you're turning, let me set the context for Isaiah chapter 40 for you. The nation of Israel has been in captivity. They have been in Babylon. It's been one of the most tragic chapters in their entire existence as a people. And they've had some tragic chapters. But you remember that God caused by His divine plan and divine sovereign power the nation of Israel to be released from their captivity, released from exile, and to make their way home back to Jerusalem. And as they do that, the prophet Isaiah is writing, and he is writing for those people at that time, coming out of exile and heading back to Jerusalem. And he says this to these beleaguered people, these people without a country, these people who have been exiled. Comfort. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare is ended. As you're approaching the city, as the towers of the city are there, as the guards are on the city wall, cry out, the war is over! Captivity is ended! All the prisoners are coming home! Open the gates! That her iniquity has been removed. That she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Our punishment is over. We've received enough. God has now freed us. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up. And every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain. And the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? Here's what you're to say. All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are as grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word, the promises of the Lord stands forever. The promises of our God, the word of our God stands forever. Forever. You could be a nominal Jew. 
and you would know this passage. Because it's one of the greatest chapters in your history. The day we came home. For Americans in our context, Lexington conquered July 4th, 1776, right? Patrick Henry. We know our history. They knew their history. They knew where they had been. They knew where they had come home to. And there had been a call. And in their case, it was a call for, listen, the the valleys, the low spots in the road, lift them up. The mountains that you've got to traverse over and come back down, bring those down, level them. Where it's rugged and dry, make it a grassy meadow and a plain. Clear the way so that the people of God may experience the redemption of coming home to their country and make it an easy path for them. Put an interstate highway system in. I know in our case that doesn't sound too good because we're all sick of road construction in Midland. But for the people of God, make it plain. Bring them home. Bring them home. Why? Because it's a picture of salvation that is really to come. And it's not coming home to a country. It's coming home to the Savior. And John draws upon that knowledge, that national consciousness. They understood what that meant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Jerusalem represents our God. That's the city of our God. And we're to go, go, go to Him. We're to go to the city. I, okay, okay. So what is John saying now in the Gospel of John? He says, I am that voice. I am the voice. And I'm not talking about roads and mountains and valleys and low places and high places anymore. I am talking about the Lord Himself. I'm a spiritual bulldozer going before Him. I'm here to remove all distractions. I'm here to remove everything so that when He comes down the highway, everybody's going to know. And the glory of the Lord and the promises of God will stand forever because He's not here to bring you into the city. He's here to bring you into the kingdom. That's why I'm here. That's who I am. Isaiah would go on and he would show us that he was not just talking about the exile and return from Babylon in Isaiah 40 because in Isaiah 52 and 53, part of the same collection of songs that Isaiah wrote for the Jewish people is the Messiah himself in Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant of God. He says, you may look at highways now, but here's who I want you to ultimately see. The one who was bruised for our iniquity. Crushed under the hand of the Father for your sin. That's who I'm really trying to get you to see. And then he ends it in Isaiah 65 and 66. With a, with a, a writing of the beautiful consummation of the new heaven and the new earth. The kingdom that will finally and fully come. Where Messiah reigns as king. And John says, I'm the voice. I'm here to prepare the way for him. I'm here to make good on the promises God has given all throughout the Old Testament. All that anticipation, it's about to be fulfilled. I'm just here to announce it. What does he say? I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. 
make straight the way of the Lord. Not the people of the Lord this time, but the Lord Himself. He's come to seek and to save that which is lost. He has come to restore that which has been destroyed by years of exile and famine and drought and pestilence. He is here to make way for the promises to be fulfilled. What a joyful proclamation. What good news. No doubt there were some like Simeon who heard that and rejoiced. But there were also the Pharisees and the Levites and the Sadducees and the priests who knew their time was over. What's good news for some is bad news for others. But regardless of that, John says, I'm just the voice. I'm just the messenger. And I'm here to tell you that the Messiah has come. Your sins can be washed away once and for all. Salvation is near. In such moments, the heart of faith rejoices, but the heart of idolatry panics. When the Messiah comes, when Jesus comes, hear me Christian, even in our own life, when we see Christ, a heart of faith will rejoice, but a heart of idolatry will panic because He does not tolerate rivals. You must believe or you must reject. You must follow Christ or you will follow yourself. There are no other responses that are acceptable. And make no mistake about it, they know that is exactly what John is communicating. And while John relieved one tension, he created another. They now know who he is, but they know who is right on his heels. They know that Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 is true. The great and the terrible day of the Lord has come. Messiah has come, and if they do not follow Him, there will be judgment. And yet, for those who want to believe and those who are looking for Messiah, there could not be a greater message. Like Simeon, Lord, now let Your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have beheld Your salvation. can close my eyes for the final time I've seen the Lord redemption has come that Messiah is Jesus the Son of God the Lord of everything the Savior of all who will come to him as his people in faith in humility in brokenness And cast their sin upon Him that He might redeem them, that He might save them. Oh, for those people, it is the best of times. For those who are proud, religious, self-sufficient, it is the worst of times. Which is it for you? Is your heart prepared for the Messiah? Has your heart been open to receive Jesus Christ? Has your mouth been open to confess your sin to Him and your dependence upon Him? Then this is the best of times for you. 
May God help us to heed the message of John and to look to Messiah. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this message from John the Baptist's own mouth. Thank You for the testimony that he gives. Thank You for his own self-denial that paved the way for You to be exalted. Not only in this passage, but in the passages that will follow, there is just now a new and great anticipation. We know that You've come. And now we can put aside, like John is calling for, all the the hills and the mountains and the valleys of distraction, and we can look to You. From the ends of the earth, from the greatest to the smallest, we can look to You and all confess that we are the chief of sinners, but Christ is a greater Savior than any of our sins. We can hope in Him. We can trust in Him. Lord, thank You for this way-clearing testimony from the Apostle that He has recorded this and put this in this book that we might have hope. That we might be convicted. That we might be brought to the end of ourselves and find the beginning of our life in Christ. Thank You. We love You, Father. We love You, Lord Jesus. We love You, Holy Spirit. We pray that You would work in the hearts of everyone here. Save those who need to be saved. That they would call out to Jesus Christ. Find forgiveness in Him. As we come to the Lord's table, Father, we pray that we would partake as the people of God with great joy. With great thanksgiving at what Christ has done for us. Father, for those who don't know Christ as their Savior, for those who have not followed Him in believers' baptism, to confess that they are following Christ, for those who are harboring sin in their lives, may this time be a rebuke to them. Not out of anger, but out of love. That they might be corrected and brought back to a right relationship with You through Jesus. Cause them to withhold taking this. And to be puzzled with with great and godly curiosity at the peace and the joy that those who have followed you, that those who believe in you have. And may you use all of this, Lord, and all of us to bring us closer to you. To make us more like you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.